Um, I think that's going, I'm not sure, but let's, um, hold on. Mary Jane, I, um, I think you've come in. Welcome. Um, it's good to have you all again. Let's, let's start because the, the, the poem we're doing is long and um, Boethius is such a good writer, such a good thinker. I think he's going to help all of us um, see some really important things. So, in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you again, Lord, for um, the gift of our life from you, the gift of yourself through the day, your presence with us. Um, we already know from our works that you give your permission for evil. It's not because you're evil, there's nothing evil in you, it's your way of protecting our good and our free will. <laughs> like a good teacher, <laughs> saying, turn the volume on, <laughs> God. Um, like a good teacher helping us to see things and to learn from them. Um, we were meant to learn and grow in our faith. Um, I ask pardon for our sins. Um, the older we get, I think, the more we bear them, um, even if we get better. Strengthen us, please, to give ourselves to what you're asking and help us trust that with these writers that we're reading, we're learning to hear your voice more clearly, that you're speaking to us. Um, Boethius is going to remind us tonight that there are lots of bad voices, that we listen to the wrong things and we end up in the wrong position so often, like Boethius itself, himself at the beginning of the book. Um, strengthen us, please, to hear better, to get clear on your word, and to make it living in our lives, um, to give ourselves to what you're asking. Um, help us um, to find the goodness in each other, to turn to each other for help. We're not meant to be alone, we're meant to be together, the body of Christ. So. Um, help us to keep our eyes open, our ears open to those around us, um, um, to find you and them, each other. Um, we offer these prayers in Christ um, our Lord. Amen. I should have asked for prayers. I will next week. I'm sorry for not doing that. I, I will. Um, it's too important. Um, any, in fact, good, Suzanne just said it. Any prayers? I'm glad to take a second. Anything weighing on any of you? Anybody have prayer requests? Be glad to take a second. It's good for us to do this. No, nobody? You want to say hello? Did you say hello? No. Oh. Okay, let's start. Can you turn to the Hori? If I can do this briefly, I enjoyed what we did last week. I thought it was really good. You remember in the 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 Hori Canonica is um, organized, structured around the hours. Um, of the prayers. 
it's really interesting um, that um, not only are the is the poem structured around the monastic hours prime terse sext knowns you know all of them through the through the day um, so that we're we are implicitly taken into the monastic life um, we Auden is um, actively asking us to participate in a monastic way of living even though we're carrying on a job we could be a doctor a teacher a lawyer it doesn't matter a hangman <clears throat> the butcher and some of the figures he mentions in the poem but by structuring it around the monastic hours what he's saying is um, every one of us and I think this theme is going to be made explicit in the section we read today in the knowns every one of us has been um, given the secret to life so even if we go through life caught up with business work raising a family you know whatever it is that takes up so much of our time we know what life's meaning is it's been revealed to us Christ gave it to us <coughs> so the great mysteries of the kingdom that were that were withheld from the pagans from pre pre or a pre-christian world are ours so a great part of what we do we do enlightened we know um, we we live in another pattern we're, we even though we're in the world here everything we do relates us to another order that's why I've kept repeatedly using the word apophatic you know I've talked about where are we when we take the Eucharist um, when we walk out of church on our way to the parking lot where are we um, because by taking Christ into us <clears throat> in one way we're in the kingdom we're with him that's our faith and in another we're we're on our way to the car so where are we and I think it's important to particularly with a poem like this to be reminded that at every moment of our lives we're somehow linked to a mystery and most of its secrets have been revealed to us we know them um, we know who's Lord we know who saved us we know what he's asked um, we've got something other people don't have one of the ironies of the modern world is that we're the first civilization to live um, without Christ after he came we call this a post-Christian age that we're living according to another set of systems um, I think it's one of the great degradations of our world. It's one of the reasons we're in such turmoil. We're the first civilization to have rejected God after he came. Pagans didn't know him, even even though you know now from your Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, pagans had this extraordinary intuition, some sense, intimations of God, of Christ, without knowing him. We live in a post-Christian age. We're the first civilization to go on in life as if God didn't come like the mysteries aren't there, the secrets are there. So Auden is offering a, us a poem in which he's showing people carrying on their ordinary everyday lives um, as if there's no secret going on, but, but it is. And we know it in the form of a victim. We've been talking about this victim that's been implied you know, through the poem and the scapegoating that goes on in everybody's life. So 
Um, so two things to remember. By structuring it according to the monastic hours, he's taking us back in time to a monastic way of life and overlaying it on our life now. And at the same time, by structuring it around the canonical hours, we're at, this is Good Friday, we're taken back to that moment when a god, we were killing a god, and the rest of the world was going on. The Roman world was carrying on as it had before, and the Jewish world was going on. They were getting rid of this renegade who was causing problems for them because he called himself God. He was an embarrassment to them, a shame. They wanted to do everything they could to ignore him. Is everybody clear? That's our world. That's the, that's the world he's showing us. So the, the structure of the canonical hours is not arbitrary or artificial. It goes right to the heart of what he's doing in this poem. He's showing us, going about our lives, wanting to live another ordinary day, except it's Good Friday. And the hours are divided up just as they were on the day Christ died. Okay, that will be made explicit in just a second. Okay, so remember in prime in the first section, um, we have a consciousness waking, and it's 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 um, um, it calls to mind the innocence of Adam um, before the fall, in a pre-Edenic or a pre-fallen kind of innocence. But the day begins. And we discover that in the first act, he loses that innocence and enters the fall. In the, in the terse, remember, it, it, it begins with um, the hangman shaking paws with his dog in what looks like an innocent, kind act. And then we get these lines, the hangman sets off briskly over the heath. He does not know yet who will be provided that... Um, What's the word I'm looking for? Holy is not the right one, but oracular. It's that oracular phrase suggesting a sacrificial victim will be offered. You know, whatever the occasion was in the Jewish world or in the you know in the in the Christian world when Christ came. But he does he does not know yet who will be provided due to the high works of justice. The judge descends the stair does not know yet by what sentence he will apply on earth the law that rules the stars. He has this sense of this great job he's going to perform. And we get the poet writing, but all of these people have nothing more on their minds than having just another good day. And that first section ends, there will be no squabbling on Mount Olympus, no Chthonian mutters of unrest, but no other miracle knows that by sundown we shall have had a good Friday. That we'll pass the day, it'll be another day, um, without knowing something really important was going on. It had to be that way for the rest of the world, Christ's crucifixion, right? The Romans living their lives, the Jews going, all the people all over the world, a God was being crucified, people were going on with their lives without knowing exactly what was happening at that moment. In the sext, in the sixth hour, at noon, remember we got several groups. The first one were described in terms of a vocation. They had this strong sense of purpose. They were so accomplished at what they did. Um, could it be a surgeon, a cook, 
uh, McClurk, didn't matter. In the second section, we get descriptions of these people with authority who have the power to get other people to do what they should. And so we're giving the sense of the paradoxical nature of the city again, that the city is this very great thing. It raises us out of this primitive existence. We would be like feral animals otherwise. And yet there's a cutting edge. That we do all these great things, but without knowing something else is there that we don't see. And then in the third section, we got to that, remember all those phrases that, that describe this crowd. And I thought, I thought everybody's discussion on that last week was just great. The crowd sees only one thing, which only the crowd can see, an epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Auden makes it clear that it's only in the crowd that people find out who they are. It's only in the proud that they can call each other brothers. It's they come together. So there's something good about the proud, crowd. It, it gives people an identity. And yet, what defines the crowd is this epiphany of that which does whatever is done. Um, so it's as if it mindlessly goes along without knowing it. And I think the, the scene we're meant to recall is the crowd at Christ's crucifixion when the crowd said, crucify him, crucify him. That was the crowd. We go through that in every Good Friday. And we're a part of the crown. We're, we're going along with the crucifixion of God. Um, only because of that we can say all men are our brothers superior because of that to the social exoskeletons, people whose outward, inward things become outward. When have they ever ignored their queens for one second? Stop work on their provincial cities to worship the prince of this world. The irony is like other things, things are so double-edged in this poem that I, I, the ironies of this are so subtle. I think we're supposed to think of Satan, the prince of the world. I also think it's hard to hear the word prince without thinking of the son. You know, he's the, the heir to the kingdom. Um, but the surface meaning, I think the, the, the meaning in the forefront is Satan, even though it has, a, I think, a double sense there. The prince of this world like us at this noon on this hill in the occasion of this dying, whatever death is going on, okay? So that's where we were last week. What I'd like to do tonight is just read half of the knowns. <clears throat> the ninth hour, this is three o'clock. Traditionally, this is the hour that Christ was crucified. So we've been going through the monastic hours that correspond to his death. In the, in the sext, what we just you know, reviewed, the, the noon hour, Christ was going through his trial, the scourging. So each of the canonical hours corresponds to some event on Good Friday. On the knowns, it's midday, it's three o'clock. This is the hour in which the death took place. Okay, so the image of the scapegoating that's been implied that everybody goes about their job doing what they do, scapegoating without they know it. Husbands and wives do it, parents with their children, workers, that we often um, create a scapegoat for ourselves in the way we interact with people. So here's the nose, okay? The third hour.
or I mean three o'clock, the ninth hour. <clears throat> well, we know to be not possible. I hope that's clear. The force of that is so extraordinary to me. How could it be possible for a god to die? A god's immortal. He can't die. A god, by definition, is deathless. He can't suffer death. It's impossible. So the opening line of um, the knowns speaks to an impossibility. What we know to be not possible, though time after time foretold by wild hermits, by shaman and sibyl gibbering in their trances, or revealed to a child in some chance writ rhyme, like will and kill. I hope you hear the irony of that rhyme, because this is all about our wills, good or bad, and killing. But he's, he's associated with rhymes in a child, you know, a ch children's rhyme book. <laughs> what Odd's doing here is, is just subtle with ironies. Um, revealed to a, in, um, to a child in a chance rhyme, like will and kill, that this thing that's impossible comes to pass before we realize it. We are surprised at the ease and speed of our deed and uneasy. It's barely three in afternoon, yet the blood of our sacrifice is already dry in the grass. We are not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. The day is too hot, too bright, too still. I mean, we, you can hear ourselves complaining, it's too hot, we should work cooler or hotter. The day is too hot, too bright, too still, too ever, too ever, because that will never go away. The dead remains to nothing, not alive anymore. What shall we do till nightfall? How do we pass this day? The wind is dropped and we have lost our public, the faceless many who always collect when any world is to be wrecked, blown up, burnt down, cracked open, felled, sawn in two, hacked through, torn apart. Whenever we face a disaster, um, you know, when the storms hit in the, in the, in the gulf or whatever, whatever we face, um, Hi, Connie. Welcome. I'm glad you're here. I always miss you when you're not here in the opening. We're just reading the known section. We just started the known section after a brief review of the, of the two preceding sections. This is the third hour of the day of canonical prayers, the monastic prayers. It's the hour in which Christ was killed. Um, so we're in the midst of this. Um, we're being what Auden is showing us is a people going on with their daily lives, um, very often making scapegoats of each other without realizing that a scapegoat has been provided, that God has offered himself to take our sins, um, to show us a way to get to, to return to God. That if we don't offer ourselves in some ways as victims, give ourselves freely and, and whatever we do, the way we do it, we will be missing him. So we're going through the day with these people. The day's too hot, too bright, too still, too ever. The dead remains too nothing. What shall we do till midnight or nightfall? The wind has dropped. The many faces um, um, have all melted away. Not one of these who's in the shade of walls and trees lies sprawled now, calmly sleeping, harmless as sheep. None of them can remember why he shouted or what about so loudly in the sunshine this morning, as if challenged 
would reply, it was a monster with red eye, a crowd that saw him die, not I. You can imagine what people would have said when Christ was crucified. Um, how, many peop- how many people there knew he was God? And how many of them, I mean, in a modern world, if it went on right now, how many of them would have had no problem with saying he was a monster with a red eye? I mean, they would find some fairy tale phrase to describe what in their mind was an absurdity. They didn't know that this was God. They were killing this man. All, if challenged, would reply it was a monster with one red eye, a crowd that saw him die, not I. The hangman is gone to wash, the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our feet. So all the people have set off to do the day. Um, they have come to this moment, the hangman, the judge, the soldiers. Um, the act is over. The victim has been um, executed. The Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the yellow dam, turn their kind faces from us, and our projects under construction look only in one direction, fix their gaze on our completed work, pile driver, concrete mixer, crane and pickaxe, wait to be used again, all the tools are there. But how can we repeat this? (laughs) We go on every day repeating our existence, But how can anybody ever repeat that one act? How can we ever go through it again? It will never happen again. It's done. God offers his life. So either we change our days um, or we go on like it never happened. But how can we repeat this? Outliving our act, we stand where we are as disregarded as some discarded artifact of our own, as if we are a discarded thing. Like torn gloves, rustled kettles, um, abandoned branch lines, worn lap, lopsided grindstones buried in earth, buried in earth. This mutilated flesh, our victim explains too nakedly too well the spell of the asparagus garden, the aim of our chalk pit game, stamps, Birds' eggs are not the same behind the wonder of towpaths and sunken lanes, behind the rapture of the spiral stair. People go on, um, women working their gardens, collecting stamps, some excitement that happened in a stairway, you know, whatever it is. We shall always now be aware of the deed into which they lead under the mock chase and mock capture the racing and tussling and splashing, the panting and the laughter, be listening for the cry and stillness to follow after. Wherever the sun shines, brook runs, books are written, there will also be this death. So it's as if every, we, we, the secret has been revealed. Everything we do, every game we play, every mock chase, uh, Sorry, uh uh-oh. I've lost you all. Uh, Can somebody help me here? I don't even know what to do. Um, Did somebody try sharing this? Because sometimes when somebody hits it, can anybody, if anybody shared something, it, um, um, Oh, there you're all. Sorry. 
I don't know what happened. Um, hi, Melody. Stephanie, I'm waiting for you to help us all. Give us all the answers. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah, neither do I. Neither do I. Okay, right. so let me just finish. We've only got a... Is everybody back? No. I don't know what to do either. I mean, I got the message I was disconnected and just had to contact you again. So hopefully they'll do that as well. Hi, Dave K. Hi, I'm going to put you guys on mute just to finish the poem and get going, okay? I hope everybody will rejoin us. Um, boy, I don't know what's going on. Give me a minute. I want to just give people... I don't know what's going on. Um, I'm sorry for all this technical stuff. Um... We've lost some people. I have no idea what to do. Um, let me finish. I'm here, but I can't get back on. I, I see you, Anne. You, I, oh, you do? Yeah, I okay. do. Good. I can, I, um, it only shows seven, and I think there were 11 or There some, were. I don't know what's happened. Um, Let me go ahead, and if I don't see everybody in a few minutes, I'm going to close out and try to open up again to see if that helps. So be patient, if you all would, for a minute, okay? Um, so what, what he's showing us now, the act has been done. The women will go on with their gardening. The people will go on collecting stamps. Birds' eggs, birds eggs, birds eggs are not the same. Behind the wonder of topaz, sunken lanes, behind the rapture and the... We shall always now be aware of the deed into which they lead under the mock chase, the mock capture. So every act, a mock chasing, going after something, a mock capture, playing games, every single one of them, whatever our acts are, cooking, gardening, collecting stamps, every one of them had their end in this God. Whatever aspirations, whatever good, whatever defeats, whatever sorrows, they were all answered there. That was our beginning and our end. He's the Alpha, the Omega. He's present in everything. That death, that crucifixion, was to answer our scapegoating, you know, the, the, the faults we commit when, as we go through our daily lives. So um, let me stop there. Any questions or comments on the, on the poem or its meaning or your response to it? Melody, have you been here the whole time? Because I didn't see you in, at, initially. I have. Um, I, I got disconnected with the rest of them, but came back. But this is so beautiful, but so melancholy. Um, that first, uh, that part of the line, I'm sorry, I'm competing with my husband in the other room, so I apologize if you can hear him. But the part where he uh, Tell says, him I want to um, meet him. When, I hope we can meet him one day. Uh, we'll have to get him when he's more quiet. <laughs> anyway, um, the first part of the poem, when we, and it said we were not prepared for silence so sudden and so soon. I mean, that's just so beautiful that 
you know, and then, oh, and then a little bit later, it talks about, um, where it says, um, but I, a crowd that saw him die, not I, the hangman has gone to wash the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our feet. I mean, to me, that's like, those guys were just doing their jobs. So in, in a way, they're not being held responsible the way the crowd is because the crowd was there. The crowd was shouting, crucify him. And now everything has changed. Um, there's this awkward silence, you know, where people are like, what are we going to do until nightfall? It's just everybody understands they screwed up, that they they were a part of this innocent man's death. Yeah. Let me ask this question. Just, I mean, I so enjoyed your, it's really good. Um, was there any way in which anybody could not screw up in this moment? I guess I don't understand what you mean by screw up. Well, it was your word. I'm, I'm, oh. um, <laughs> Here, well, here, let me, no, let me try to rephrase it. Okay. Is there any way in which any of us could have escaped responsibility for Christ's death? Okay. Could any of us been good enough not to need it or not to be a part of it? No. You know, in the, the beginning, no. it talked about um, the saints. I can't remember exactly what it was mm -hmm. when they, um, St. Barbara, right. St. Santorino, and that kind of made me think maybe there were some good people, but uh, I mean, for the most part, everybody is because at Christ, um, um, trial with Pontius Pilate. I mean, there were some people shouting, you know, save him, don't, you know, don't hurt him. And I don't know where those people are, but it sounds like the crowd is now the crowd that has taken over is all are all the people who are shouting crucify him are all the people that are just letting this bad thing happen. Yeah. So if there are good people, I don't know where they're at. Yeah. Let me just say, I hope I'm on theological good ground here. I may not be, but I Connie, by the way, it's good to see your face. It's, 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 this class is not class without you here at the beginning, but let me just say, I think this is theologically sound. I don't think any of us could have escaped responsibility for Christ's death. Um, no matter how good we are, no matter how good, we wouldn't have needed him unless we needed something we couldn't do, as good as we are. You know, he, only a God. Well, here, I mean, because I've gone through this theology before. Our sin, our original sin was disobedience of God. No human could atone for that. So our original injustice, the injustice that we live, that we carry within us, had to be answered by a justice, a just act. No human could atone for it because it was against God. A God couldn't do it because <laughs> it wouldn't answer our need as humans. No. So no God could do it. No human could do it. The only one who could do it had to be a god and um, a human. That's the paradox at the center of our faith. So our belief is he 
He brought a divine mercy by offering himself to do something we couldn't. So he calls all of us to justice and mercy. It's one of the great themes we've been struggling with at St. Francis for weeks now and through our right, I mean, through all of them. You know that every, that every one of the readings we've been dealing with has to do with justice. Gilly's honor, <coughs> um, the, just, the injustice of the suitors, um, the just city and the Aeneid. Um, and we're going to read it, we're going to start a work right now in which an injustice is at the center. Boethius is going to be accused of something he didn't do. It's going to be an, un, an unjust sentencing. And he is crushed. And Lady Philosophy comes to his aid. So this whole question of justice and mercy and the relationship between the two of them has been at the center of everything that we've lived with since Christ came. So, um, Melanie, it's just sort of a, I'm just um, trying to add a subtlety you know, I, I, there, no, I, I understand, and I agree with you. Even the good people that were in the crowd yes. were limited because of their sins yes. And, yes. and powerless to yeah. do this thing or to be um, a part against it right. because we're right. all sinful people. So that's their yeah. voices were muted. And I wasn't. I just want to be really clear here because you know, you know how careful I try to be about subtle distinctions. I don't have any questions in my mind that there were some people in the crowd better than others. Not a question in my mind. And that some Jews, some of the Jewish leaders were better than... One of them came, Nicodemus. I mean, some of the leaders came to Christ. So, some of them wanted him crucified. I mean, they, they did everything they could to set him up. So there's differences between good and bad. But it's absolutely crucial to say that no matter how good people were, they would have never been able to answer their problems of the world because their good, good, human goodness wouldn't have been enough. What Christ did in coming to our world is save us, but he also asked us to be better than we could be on our own, because left to ourselves, we still are selfish, we scapegoat, we make each other victims, scapegoats, you know, our husbands, our wives, our children, each other, that Christ did something to call us out of that. And I'm so glad you mentioned those saints. Um, because remember in that section, he, the point that he was making is that there are all these people who have a sense of a calling. You can, he said that, that look on people's eyes, that they have a purpose to what they're doing. Those people are good. They're the ones who help raise us out of this feral condition so that we can become civilized. So they're doing a great thing. But without them, there would have been no agency by which to bring Christ into the world. So even as good as they are, something more is needed. That was Virgil's great truth. That was one of the great gifts he gave. That too often, we, even in our virtues, you know, we think we're self-sufficient. We, um, we do subtle things to put people down, you know, even, even as good as we are. So Christ always asks something more, and he always offers something more. Maybe that's what the sacraments are. So, okay, let me stop. I, I, any, well, no, anybody, any other brief responses? I, um, Melody, I really enjoyed yours. Anybody, anybody else have something? I think we've lost people. Mary Jane, come back. Yeah, um, I, I was so 
I was kicked off and had to sign back on. Yeah, listen, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna click off for a minute to see if this helps. I don't know that it will, but be patient because I'd rather take a minute. So is that gonna bump everybody else? Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna close out. You guys are going. I'm gonna reopen it all again. So we're gonna have to do this all again. I'll be right back. It's not right click. Join now. Other people aren't going to be able to join unless. I don't know, Doc. I'm just admit. I, I'm just. Um, it's a risk. I just. Um, can you all hear me? Okay. Yes. Good. Okay. Let's hope people get back. I'm, I'm going to go on. I'm sorry this is happening, but let's go. Let's go. Any, any other comments on the canonical? Next week we will finish the known section, the third hour, and we'll stay with it until we finish it. But next week we'll, we'll, we'll finish the, the midday. Remember, this is the hour at which Christ was crucified. We're in a city. Remember the paradoxical nature of the city. And people are going about their day. It's Good Friday. Something's happened that will forever change things, um, even as people go about their work, okay? We've lost Bob and Karen. Let's go. I've got a week. Real quick, if that's okay. Sorry? Um, I have a question on that phone. Sure, sure. Go ahead. Uh, what would be meant? By the Madonna with the green woodpecker. Oh, good for you. And the Madonna of the fig tree and beside the yellow dam. Can anybody... Uh, good, I'm, Tina, I'm so glad you asked that. You know, that... <laughs> go, that no, I really am. I'm just so glad whenever you guys ask questions about things. I, I'm sorry for the way I rush at things because I, I always feel that, you know, in a classroom you can meet three times a week. We've got a week with each other and we're all getting old. And I don't know how much longer we're going to get here. We've got, we've got things to do. So anyway, I'm really glad you asked. Anybody, just, just to put this in context, you remember, it, the act has just happened. It's just taken place. Um, so none of the people are, can remember why he shouted or what about. Um, and if they were challenged, they'd reply, it was a monster with a one red eye. I mean, that's how absurd that they have to use a child's fantasy image to, to give an explanation for what just took place. The hangman has gone to wash the soldiers to eat. We are left alone with our feet. And it's interesting, he falls in very, um, in very important sections. I don't know if you notice, he falls into rhyme. An order and a beauty attends those moments. It, it changes the effect on us because of the beauty of the order. But immediately after that, he, he, the next session begins, the Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the yellow dam, turn their kind faces from us and our projects under construction 
look only in one direction, fix their gaze on our completed work. So the workers go back to work, you know, they pick up their tools, they go on. Um, but why those opening lines with those varied descriptions of the Madonna? I'm so glad you asked the question. You guys are getting good. You're also making my life harder. <laughs> <laughs> what do you say, Doc? I didn't know. I would have looked for a footnote. Connie, what do you think? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> puzzling lines, puzzling lines. I... Once again, I, I mean, I, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I have a good answer for you, Tina. I think it's a great question. Um, I wish you wouldn't embarrass me like this. Um, <laughs> my own sense of it is that it's twofold. It's one of those ironies, again, that are so subtle with him. This is Mary's mother. I mean, Christ's mother. This is Mary. Um, and the, all of the phrases suggest the way in which the modern world mocks her you know, identifies her with something silly, but this is at the moment of her son's death. Um, and Christ brought a love to the world and asks us to bring the same love when it's hardest for it. So when somebody does something awful to us, I mean, I maybe speak for myself too much here, but our, our typical response is to get angry. Don't do that. You shouldn't do that. Um, and the question is, is there some way in which we can hold on to our natural response and still do what Christ asks? He just died. Enemies put him to death. He knew it was going to happen. That's why he came. But Mary is his mother, and it's a moment of great sorrow. And she loves. She's the model of love. She loved her son. She had to watch him go through a torment. Stop and think about this as mothers. How many mothers would let go of injuries to their children? I mean, if their children got beat up at school, how many mothers are going to go calmly? I, I'm not saying they shouldn't go. My own preference, if I were going to talk with a mother, would say, go ask, go ask for justice, but bring a charity. How easy is that to do? You know, you have to deny yourself when something's been done to your son, a lot of mothers are going to jump. They're going to, they're going to use that as an excuse to get really angry. But here you've got the Madonna with the green woodpecker, the Madonna of the fig tree, the Madonna beside the Elder Dam. I'm assuming that those are images that people use to associate um, a revered object, Mary, with an ordinary thing. So there's a, for me, it's, it's a, and I don't have the answer, it, uh, the, my own response is that it calls to mind something reverent, but it also calls to mind something mocking. You know that that um, that it's it's a way of um, reinforcing the irony of the moment. What's happening? That so many people don't see it. They're going to misread it. They're going to give it an, um, a color that's different from what's really there. Um, how can we repeat this? Something extraordinary has just happened. Those are my own thoughts, Tina. I don't. <clears throat> I've not studied this poem a lot. I've only read it a couple of times. It, um, it's one I need to read more. But Apparently Durer, Durer? Durer mm -hmm. did 
um, an image of the Virgin among animals. Uh -huh. and one of them was a green woodpecker. Was it? Who's described as pecking out a song of praise. Did you all hear that? Can you hear Suzanne? Can you speak up, Doc? I just, I just looked it up, and it says that Durer... Um, he was a medieval, one of, a great, great um, woodcutter. I mean, some of the cuttings he did, all of them were religious. He, they're just extraordinary, just extraordinary. Hmm? I said all this was a drawing. Drawing? Um, he or drew drawing. a picture of the virgin among animals, the virgin among a multitude of animals in 1503. And among the animals is a green woodpecker who's described as pecking out a song of praise. I didn't look up any of the others. The interesting thing about all those three figures, Tina, the, the, the Madonna presented in different circumstances. So it's, it's once again reinforcing the sense that there's a significance everywhere to what happened, even if people everywhere didn't see it. How many people actually know about what's going on? Mary does, wherever she is. The green woodpecker, the fig tree, the elder dam. The Madonna, the Madonna, the Madonna, turn their kind faces from us, turn their kind faces from us, and our projects under construction look only in one direction, fix their gaze on our completed work. Um, while we go about our tasks, like discarded objects. Okay, let's, um, let's, it's a really good question, Tina. Well, I feel like we should take the rest of the hour for finish this poem. You know, I'm so in a habit of reading short poems to you that I... Um, one day we're going to do T.S. Eliot's The Four Quartets, which I think is the greatest poem of the 20th century, and it's long. We can break it up. Um, <clears throat> but this one is taking more time um, than I have wanted to give to poems because it's so relevant, it speaks so directly to what we're doing, and it's so subtle, you could miss a lot of it, you know, if you don't. But it's important not to miss it, because it helps us see ourselves, you know, and what we're doing every day, so. Okay, let's start, um, let's start with Boethius. Can you turn on the air conditioner? Unless you're getting cold? No, I mean, I will be, but I'll just get my blanket. No, hold it, hold on. I turned that on. Oh, you did? Yeah. Go on. Um, I had a couple of questions before we start. I'm, I'm going to just very quickly go over what we did because I want to get into the story again. Um, what's our typical response when we lose something? I'm not sure that I want to answer this question. I just think I'd like to ask it. And maybe there's no such thing as a typical response, but... If we can just be general for a second, what's our typical response when we lose something? You know, the, the woman in the Bible lost a penny and scrambled to find it. Um, I, don't, I don't want to go to the Bible. I, um, what's our typical response when we lose something and why? Anybody want to give a quick answer on that? I don't want to spend any time because, but it's, Boethius is going to lose his life. The story begins with him grieving. He's going to lose his life. He's lost everything. I'm trying to just generalize in a less dramatic way what I think goes on for most of us in our daily lives. 
what happens when we lose something and why. It becomes more special to us and everything has to stop until we try to find it. <laughs> yeah. Why? When what? losing something makes it more special. We don't appreciate it as much until we don't have it. Anybody else? You guys are nicer than I am. Anger, maybe? <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's somebody not good along with me here. Thanks, Tina. <laughs> um, I'd say often we get angry because we don't we think we don't deserve losing something. We don't like it when we lost lose something or something's taken away. And we get envious. You know, if if, if let's just say I'm thinking I'm trying to imagine because I know it's going I just think this con this virus has so brought us to an existential con condition. I'm saying I'm not trying to be flowery with that word. Um, if you lose a job and you've been working for 15 years and you don't have a house and you've been living, you know, a decent living, you have a decent home and a decent family and a decent neighborhood and you suddenly lose it and you're going to live in poverty. What does that do for your heart and mind, your psyche? I, I don't want to get therapeutic here. I really don't want to go. But it's just a way of suggesting that, you know, very often we do things out of pride and envy. We don't want to lose something. We, you know, whether we, like the crowd in the poem that we've been reading. If you, if you lose a house, lots of people commit suicide. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're so in despair. The idea of living in poverty, that, that is, they have so lived their lives to acquire certain things, and when they don't get them, they lose it. They don't have any, I mean, we're back in the Iliad, they don't have any reason for living, because their whole identity is taken up with that thing, the home, the job, or... Yeah. So, you know, these sort of, like, a, the, the plague, the... the the virus today has put everybody in a situation where they can't take fundamental things for granted as much. They have to question why they're doing what they're doing. Lots of people are forced to question because they lose everything. Restaurants have closed down. People have lost businesses. Um, what happens when we lose the things we've spent so much time acquiring? What? What? How will we respond to that? So, the 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 book. Consolation of philosophy is going to a very basic problem. We can put it philosophically that it's Job's problem. Why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? And why does he seem to reward evil people? Why, how can evil people get along in the world if the world is created by a good God? That makes no sense. So Boethius is asking that fundamental problem. I was just trying to put it in a more familiar context so that we could all relate to it. I, I just hope this doesn't become abstract philosophy because I really think it goes to truths about the way we live our daily lives. We give a lot of our life to acquiring things, a nice home, a nice car, a nice job. What happens when we lose them? And why do we respond the way we do? Those are fundamental to this work. So, <clears throat> so quickly, very, very quickly, to review what we did last week, I asked that question, why God let's good men suffer and bad men um, prosper. And I suggested two reasons, basically. One is that 
God allows um, evil, he gives permission to it, not because he's an evil God, but because we're fallen and we do evil things. It's the only, this is me, I'm, kind of, I'm not a theologian, I feel a little bit nervous here, but um, he allows that as a way of protecting our free will. The Calvinists don't believe that. The Calvinists believe that free will is taken away. Catholics don't. I don't, strongly. The two great gifts that God gave us were free will and reason, and they can't be separated. They cannot be separated. The, the root, this is St. Thomas, the root of freedom is in the reason. Yeah. The root of freedom is in reason. Because it's our ability to, to um, deliberate choices that allows us to make a choice that we can choose this instead of this. So you can't separate the two. The two are the greatest gifts. So if there's any meaning to the, the saying that we are made in God's image, that those two powers are central to God. They're of his nature. Reason, light, wisdom, freedom. The freedom is will. He made us in his image. But in our fall, we wounded those powers. God gives permission because he wants to protect our free will. He, he does, there's nothing evil in God. It's absolutely essential to see that. He allows it to protect our freedom, but it puts him in a position of having to bring good out of that evil. It's going to be one of Boethius's claims. It'll, we'll get to it shortly. And I think the other reason that at least it struck, I've not heard a priest say this, but to me, it, it, to me it's, it, it just has to be said. Um, I think the other reason he allows it is because by giving us the freedom to choose, even if we choose badly, we learn at some point of our lives, we have to take more care in the choices that we make because so many of our choices have bad consequences. And we don't see it at the time. You know, Suzanne and I look back on, on our lives and neither one of us tried to do bad things. But both of us look back with real regrets at some of the things we did because we just have learned to see and feel things, you know, that we didn't then. So um, our, our free wills grow in depth and gravity from the burdens we carry it, it helps us to take better care of our freedoms and the choices that we do make. Wouldn't you all agree with that? You know, I don't think we see it when we're younger, but to me it's just impossible not to see it as we get older, that there's a beauty that can grow into us from our burdens and our sufferings um, that we didn't have when we were younger because we were so stupid. God. <laughs> anyway, I laugh at myself sometimes because I think, you know, if I, I, I'm sure that I'm going to look back at 10 years and say at this point in you know, our lives we're still more stupid probably than we'd like to think we are. But anyway, so, so I think that's at the heart of this, that it, it's, a, it's partly about our minds and our wills, what God allows and why he allows bad things to happen to us and good things to happen to bad people. Remember historically that there was a shift in power um, from Rome to Constantinople when um, Constantine moved the center of power east. And that historically has had um, 
um, tremendous consequences for relations between East and West. Rome was a Latin world. The principal language was Latin. It was Roman. Rome was a Latin world. Byzantium was a Greek world. Greek was the principal language. And some of the greatest tensions in the early church dealing with heresies had to do with East and West. Almost all the early church heresies came from the East. They're very Eastern in mindset. And so many of them were otherworldly. They wanted to do away with the human quality. Arian did. Um, they wanted to make Christ all man or all God. Or, um, But there were lasting tensions between Rome and Constantinople. In, um, in Boethius' time, he lived in the um, early 6th century. He was born somewhere around 470, 74, 80, somewhere in there, and died 424. So early 6th century. Those tensions still existed. They're going to continue to exist until the 11th century. And if you know anything about your history, you know that in, ten, I think, 1076, 1077, I can't remember, the Greek Orthodox Church, the Eastern Orthodox world, separated from the Western over the filioque, the nature of the Holy Spirit. So those tensions were always there. When Boethius lived, um, the, the last um, emperor of the West had been replaced by a king who declared himself um, the head of Italy. So the king was, or the leader was no longer um, an emperor, it was a king. And during Boethius' time, the king was Theodoric, 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 yeah, Theodoric. Um, and there were tensions between the Senate and the king. And the king suspected um, um, dangers from the Senate because of what it was doing. And some men were accused of treason. We're going we're gonna to touch on this in the book. Boethius is going to give it as a reason. And um, wanted to uh, exile a couple of the men. When they, when they were exiled, they accused Boethius of himself being involved in a treason against Theodoric, and he wasn't. So he was accused, and it's, he's taken to prison, and it's during his time in prison that he writes this book. Okay? We've talked about this, that the great themes are this one that I've talked about. Why does God allow... If God is a good God, how could he allow evil men to prosper? You know, the, the really, I mean, when I, just the fact when I say that, um, if you're a merciful God and people are evil, your love may convert that evil man and make him good. So, I mean, just on the, on the face of it, in a, in a pre-Christian world, it wouldn't make sense. In a Christian world, it would make sense that God would allow it because if he loves his children, they're all, they're all created by him, he would want them to come back. You know, these, there are those passages in the Old Testament that said, you can do evil, but if you turn, you will live. If you're a good man and turn and do evil, you will die. God wanted all people to turn. Um, he was always there trying to help them come back. So... Um, in the early pages we're going to see that one of the most important things that Boethius is going to do for or Lady Philosophy is going to do for Boethius is ask him why he's so upset 
and she's going to lead him to see that he's so upset because he's lost himself. He's got to recover a memory, he's got to recover some sense of the nature of man, and it's slowly by dealing with those questions. What are his beginnings, what are his ends, what is nature that will bring him to a point where he can accept what's going to happen. So it's a, a pretty amazing book. Okay. Um, a couple of comments on the technique. We didn't talk about this because we were so rushed last night, but it's important to get to them. The technique of consolation is um, a combination of two things that Boethius does. One is this combination of um, two forms, what's called prosy meter. Um, the dominant form is prose, is expository, it's, it's explaining things. But periodically, um, the, the prose sections are interrupted with um, lyrics, with short lyrics. So it's prosimetric, it's, it's alternating um, prose with verse, okay? Now, now why did he do that when in the opening scene, Boethius's criticism of, I mean, Lady Philosophy's criticism of Boethius is, you read too much poetry. The problem with you is you read too much literature. Why would Boethius set out his work in alternating these two forms, prose and lyric? prose and verse. He gives the answer himself indirectly. Why would you think? Just from your short experiences, I mean, you know, we, we've not done a course in literature, but literature's lyrics has been a big part of our course. Think about your experiences with a lyric. Maybe you've not enjoyed it, I don't know. But if you have enjoyed some of the lyrics, why? What does a lyric, what does a lyric do for you that a prose won't, a prose piece won't? Well, to me, the prose is um, philosophy, and she is a tough gal. She doesn't take any guff. She doesn't take anything from him. And the the poetry part is his ability or his way to be able to be more emotional. I mean, this is a whether she will accept that or not yet, it is an emotional time for him. So he should be able to express himself in an emotional way. So that's why the poetry. Um, are, all the, are all the poems meant to be taken his expressions of him? Because often, uh, often the poems make an objective statement. They're describing things objectively, but they're put in verse. I, I guess um, to me it was just whether it was describing the situation in a more an emotional way. So I, I didn't differentiate between his voice or hers as much as maybe they were the muses. I don't, I'm not sure. No, she chased, she chased those gals away. Those She's pretty, away. pretty emphatic. <laughs> I, think, I think what she's doing, what he's doing is... Um, it's rhythmic. It's like the. It's as if the prose. It is making demands on her intellect. There's a thesis to prove, dialectically. They're engaged in a dialect, but it's a work. It's a labor. She has to work to get his mind to do things right. It's it's, it's like St Stephanie working with me earlier and. <laughs> you tried the volume, God, and boy. I'm not going to let that pass. God, 
Anyway, you, you know, you, um, you have to work at something, particularly if somebody's really emotionally upset. I think the, the, the lyrics are meant as a rhythmic relaxation, that you're in verse and there's still an argument. It's, there's still something being presented philosophically, objectively, but it's in verse. It's, it's a way of easing because you know that she talks through the whole, in fact, that goes to my next question. Um, you know that through the whole thing she keeps talking about applying heavier and heavier medicine. So while she works on him, works with him, you know, you know she's, um, um, we get these interludes where we're given verse, I, I think as a way of helping us to quiet, to here, to not just be in our minds arguing, Re reasoning that that reason by itself can get too dry and even damaging if we don't bring to our reason something that's melodious or beautiful lovely it'll miss something in our souls and i think you all know that because i'm sure every one of us had the experience of wishing some guy would shut up even if the guy was right or if we were getting lectured on something that i could have been perfectly rational but if he didn't bring something kinder something more involving the heart, that it would be too much. So the method is, is not an accident. It's a part of what she's doing. So, so um, let me just, let me take the second question. Why does she do a dialectic? Why does she engage in a dialogue? Because she talks often about, um, you're not ready for that medicine yet. You're not strong enough yet to, you know, she's going to hit him over the head at one point. I mean, she does it a number of times. She's going to be pretty tough on him. But she's trying to be careful. Why does she, why is it a dialogue, a, a form of dialectic, the two of them engaging? I was thinking about it. I'm, I'm so... Say again. It becomes two voices. It's not. It's not just he's sitting there thinking, and then he's thinking, "Oh, but." It becomes two voices when by doing it that way. Yeah, and one's a leader. I mean, she's taking the lead clearly. Um, like maybe reasoning. She's trying to make him reason out. Um, what's wrong, like, so that he can think about what it is um, without her just directly saying it. He's, she's getting him to think about yeah. it. Yeah. Isn't there a truth to that? If you ask somebody a question um, and the person speaks, even if the question is guiding and leading somewhere, if the person answers, that person, that response is more a part of that person's character. Mm. Um, just in the sense that it comes from him, e even if it was prompted. In the Platonic, this is not a time to go into this, but in the Platonic dialogues, Plato believed, we're going to get to this because it's one of the major themes of the poem or the work, that all, all knowledge for Plato is a form of recollection. It's an amnesis. It's bringing something from the past 
forward, going back to the past. So the, Plato believed that. He believed in reincarnation, that we, that we had experienced eternal things before. So we, we've, we know the eternal things. We know the, what he called these forms in eternity. So a good teacher for Plato is one who helps somebody recollect. So for a teacher, for him, meant bringing out what was already there. Now, Aristotle would disagree with that. So do I. Um, but, but there's a lot of truth to it. There's a lot of truth to it. If, if, if just, I'm to give you one example. If we all, I, I, I think, I'm, oh, God. Oh, God. The fact that you guys are here amazes me. God. Um, one, of, one of the claims that I would make for poetry, it's a claim that a Nobel Prize poet made, is that what's behind all poetry is a memory of the loss of the garden. That all poetry it, it is an attempt to, to find in our experiences here our love of something permanent, a desire for more. It, it goes to the poem, you know, after the, you know, all, all the leading, all the coming away was all towards one thing. It was to be with God again. It's going to be the fundamental argument of consolation. The beginning of our life is God, the end of our life is God. We came from him, we go to him. So there is in all of us this, what Jung called this collective memory, that there's this longing for the permanence that we once had. So lots of poems will be expressions of pain, precisely because we've lost it. We no longer have that. That's why the pain is so great. So all poetry, whether it's, um, it celebrates or affirms some goodness, or it's, an, or it's an expression of mourning, a loss, all poetry has as its roots this longing at the center of our soul to recover what we once had. Where am I going? Where did I start? Where did I, sorry, where did I start? M and M, where was I? No, is that what I was talking about? Somebody help me out. Where did I start? You started out with the two, the dialogue and the... Oh, the dialogue, yeah. That the questions are directed. That um, she's helped because Plato thinks... Plato's belief was that the job of a teacher would just bring out what was already there. Aristotle doesn't. I don't either. Aristotle says our, our, our soul is like a tabula rasa, a blank state, and we start bringing things. But I think Plato is right in the sense that all of us have this longing for something we once had. So, um, Lady Philosophy is trying to guide him in a discussion towards something he's forgotten. Um, and um, I think the, the dialogue um, does a couple of things. Um, one, it helps him to be patient, to trust in somebody else. He learns to, so he's getting out. The fact that he's engaging with somebody means he has to get out of himself. He just can't sit there and weep or feel sorry for himself. Um, but she's engaging his reason and his heart through the poetry um, so that step by step he can get out of that condition. Um, and it's clear that, that she's aware that she's going to get tougher as she goes along. 
that once she begins, she's very patient. <laughs> well, although I think Melody's description of her is pretty direct. Early on in the poem, she says, or like, or like you, one of those donkeys. I mean, she doesn't hold back on some things either. I mean, she's, she gets pretty sharp with him. But um, she's trying to do everything he, she can to engage him, to pull him out. Um, she's not just lecturing at him. Um, she's asking questions so that he's learning to give his will to something other than his own anger or self-pity. Okay. I'm just going to look at a couple of the lines in the first book um, and just to get us going and then see if we can't get to the second book tonight because I really want to get along. Um, when she arrives on page four, she's described as being in this long faded gown, um, uh, towering and human at the same time. Um, and on the first page it says, their splendor ever was obscured by a kind of film of long neglect like statues covered in dust. On the bottom hem could be read the embroidered Greek letter phi, and on the top the Greek letter theta, between the two a ladder of steps, because it shows the um, stages of learning if you know anything about the, the Plato's cave, you know that the essential step of getting out of the cave is to ask questions. The more you assert things, the more you claim you know, um, the more you argue, the more you stay where you are. That the only way out of the cave is to question because it shows you don't have all the answers, that you're learning. Um, so there's this ladder of um, ascent. Um, but they're framed in terms of a, a phi and a theta because they represent the two fundamental aspects of philosophy. One of them is called practical philosophy or moral philosophy. It's ethics. What do we do? How do we know what to do under these circumstances? What's the right thing to do when the circumstances are here? You know, it's, we, do the, we, we face these every day of our lives because we're constantly making decisions all day long. So one aspect of philosophy is called moral philosophy or practical the other is theoretical or speculative or contemplative. It deals with final things. It points towards theology. The final ends, why something is so. Why does God allow evil? You know, That's not an immediately practical question, even though it's got practical implications. So with philosophy, he's, he has somebody present who can take him back to final things, raise questions for him so that he's raising questions for himself and having to answer them. Um, with two of these dimensions at stake, final ends, where's he going, and practical matters, how to get there. Okay? That's why she's so careful about what she's doing. And I think it's particularly important here and, and I, you know, I don't want to overlook this. In fact, let me ask you guys. Um, um, God, where are I, we lost Bob and God bless? Because I'd like to put this to the men. Bob or Mike's not here. Dave, David, why is philosophy a lady instead of a man? All the women are smiling right now. I, I. You're welcome to turn off. You're welcome to turn off the screen. Just blank out the camera, Dave. 
David, why is Fluffy a woman? K, you K, you cannot help him on this. <laughs> Dave, what do you think? Why is why is why is Flossy a lady? You're surrounded by women. You, God. <laughs> so are you. <laughs> my answer. My uh, I, I I get more and more nervous. Bring them on. Bring them on. <laughs> as soon as I say that, I want I want to take I want to take shelter somewhere. <laughs> Come on, David. What do you say? Why Why a woman? Okay, you cannot help him. <laughs> no thoughts. Any anything? No thoughts. <laughs> I'm, I'm taking a safe side. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you. Okay, anybody else? Anybody? Maria, have you got a thought on this? Why? Why is the figure of philosophy in the figure of in the in the in the form of a woman. Maria, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Hi. Um, Why a woman? Why a woman? Um, I think maybe biologically women are more connected with emotions. So wisdom is not only like knowledge is different than wisdom. Like wisdom applies to emotions and it's like more holistic and women embody that more than men so it's more holy what is she what? holistic more holistic yeah it, here let me let me follow that up if you can I, this is really interesting to me because i you know is feminine vanity going to get in the way here i mean what so this is you guys are on trial here right now um just in view of what you said lady philosophy as she's presented here, is is not appealing directly to his heart. She's because I, I believe what you just said, but she's not appealing directly to his heart. She's appealing to his mind through concepts, through forms of knowledge. So how would you what would you do because with that? I, I would say that that be because um, with wisdom you also act uh, in the best situation according um, to what is in front of you. So with a man, that would be the best way to reach the man because they use more the mind. Anybody else? Wisdom's so, so, Doc, hold on, Doc, you go ahead, what? Wisdom in the Bible is Yeah, did you all hear Doc? I don't think they can hear you, Doc. Wisdom in the Bible is female. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We've talked about this before. Wisdom in the ancient world was, I'm, you're, that's not answering the question. Wisdom in the ancient world was feminine, always. Athena was the goddess of wisdom, and she was, if you remember the goddesses, by the way, she's under Zeus. She has to obey her father. And it's interesting in the Bible, because you can say that it's feminine, but in the, in the Christian tradition, wisdom is figured in Christ. So when it talks about wisdom in the ancient world, you know, the, I was there in the beginning, playing in the fields of the Lord. The wisdom, that's Christ. He was the means of creation. He's the means of bringing love to the world. He's the image of the Father, but he's wisdom. 
Um, but in the ancient world, remember Athena, she's subject to Zeus, but she's the image of wisdom, and she's the only god that's dual-formed. She came out of, she, this is so important, she came out of her father's head. She's the only one that wasn't generated like the other gods. She came out of his father, her father's head, conceptual, and she's a fighter. She's the only dual goddess. She weaves, she's a weaver, she puts things together, she's a fighter. How many, how many women put both of those things together instead of becoming one or the other? Wisdom configures both of them, brings them together. That doesn't answer the question, but, but so the question is why is Lady Philosophy feminine? Anybody, Maria, you want to follow that up or anybody else have anything to add to it? Maybe she's more nurturing, like she's got, you can't just throw wisdom on somebody, you've got to spoon feed it to them, and so she's a woman because of that, and then that's why she's holding the books too, in case she needs to knock them on the head a couple of times. <laughs> and women are talkers. Women are what? Talkers. 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 <laughs> <laughs> David, you and I have got some real care to take here. I like all of those answers. Maria, go ahead. Did you have something more? You know, I really think there's a truth to what you said, Melody, that that's the interesting thing for me is that it, it combines, you know, what I, Maria and I were saying, that her mode of dealing with things is conceptual, prim, principally, and which is masculine, not feminine at all, not feminine at all, at all. Women are much more likely to speak, express their emotions than men. Men are likely to get away from their emotions and stay in their heads. I remember one time at Francis, I was giving one of these classes, you know, and when we started together years ago, and one of the men who attended the class came up to me after, and he, he said, I can't remember his words, but he said, I'll, just, I'll never forget it. I grew up as an athlete, and I was in the Marines. And some of the people who, you know, who've been with this stuff for a long time, one guy used to come up just in amazement and say, you know, I grew up a Catholic, the Catholic Church taught me what to, what to believe and how to believe, but they never taught me why, and you have. He was just amazing. He said, I can't put it together that you played basketball in a Marine. <laughs> and anyway, this one guy came up to me after a class, and he, I just, I don't think I saw the full implications of it then, but he said, don't you feel strange being so different from other men? You know, I, I, the people in the Marines would have never said, I was Marine, I was platoon leader in the, in the Marines, and I was, you know, a basketball player when I was young. But I love poetry. I mean, you, you all cannot know that. You cannot not know that. Um, I think what, if you put together some of the things that you've said, one of the amazing things about Lady Philosophy to me is that she's, she's masculine in the sense that she works with conceptual arguments. But the whole motion of everything she does is nurturing. Absolutely. Um, and it just makes me wonder, a man without that quality or a woman without a conceptual quality? You know, we're, we're meant to bring the sexes together and that's such a hard thing in our age, given what's going on. But part of the beauty, I think, of lady philosophy is that she has such a good mind, she works conceptually, she doesn't get emotional, she can still beat him over the head, you know, call him a donkey. Um, She's absolutely firm 
there's something very manly about her. But at the, at the root of what she's doing, she's absolutely nurturing. She wants to bring him along. And I just think that's fundamentally feminine. And I'm not saying that to say that men don't have it. I would say the men that don't have that are missing something. And I think that women who don't have that masculine thing, you know, are missing. That the, one of the effects of the fall was to divide men and women. We've been talking about since that, the, you know, this one of the themes of the ethic underlying the epic is this the the str the tensions between the sexes as one of the effects of the fall. Before the fall, Adam and Eve were perfectly one, absolutely united. We want to get back to that in our marriages. We want to go back and recover that union. Um, but I don't think it's an accident that it's a woman because wisdom by its nature is nurturing. It's calling back. It's trying to recover. So, um, any comments before we go on? Um, I looked up something and it says, I guess like a commentary or something, and it says um, some even describe lady philosophy as an angel of God who brings Boethius back to God by means of philosophic, philosophical argument. Where are you reading that from, Tina? Um, I was looking at Lady Philosophy. On online? Yes. Yeah, stay away from stay away from lines. Get, stay off the web with this stuff. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, I'm really serious. God, what you'll get on the web will just twist your head. Um, if you can trust the readings in our class and some of the materials I give you, and if you want more, ask me. But the web will take okay. you everywhere. And some of the things you, I just am, I'm just amazed that of what people do with this stuff. Um, if, if you go on and Google the Iliad with a modern mind, you're going to get Freud and feminism and sexism and Marxism and um, it's just sad what's going on. Be careful of the line. That's all I can say, the web. Here, turn to page four. I want to touch on just a couple of things here and get to book two. Um, I'm going to mute you guys all again just to try to keep the... But don't hesitate to come back on. Do not hesitate, you guys. So, Lady Philosophy approaches him and says, Who she demanded her, this is on page four, her piercing eyes alight with fire has allowed these hysterical sluts to approach this sick man's... I so like her. I mean, she just doesn't mince words. Um, she's so tough-minded. Um, she chases them away and says that part of his problem was listening to those sluts for so long. On page six... Um, Boethius gives us this, when she saw that it was not that I would not speak, but that dumbstruck I could not, she gently laid her hand on my breast and said, it, it is nothing serious, only a touch of amnesia that he's suffering the commonest disease of deluded minds. He has forgotten for a while who he is, but he will soon remember once he's recognized me. To make it easier for him, I will wipe a little of the blinding cloud of worldly concern from his eyes. So from that point on, what she's trying to do is take away um, the control 
that the world has on him because he's given it too much importance. It's, it's, it's just thrown his mind off. Um, so, um, what, what in, the, in the earlier text, anybody reading that line would have associated amnesia with this notion of anamnesis which is one of the major themes of the book. It's one I've already touched on. And by the way, I dropped a, a text on that in your, on our blog so you can see it. But the word anamnesis means to bring back, to recall, um, before, what was. The, the language of the Mass, the Latin Mass, you'll see it in the text that I sent you, is do this in remembrance of me. Now, the Protestant world sees that as just a recollection. It's an act of recalling in memory. That's all. The Catholic believes that that's not so, that we're actually returning and recovering and participating in that act again in the present moment. It's like Auden's poem. So instead of going around the world wishing that this were just another day, we're actually with Christ. We bear him, he's offering us his life, and we receive it with the understanding that he's helping us to do something we can't do on our own. So her task is to help him recover what he's lost. Okay? Um, um, on page 7... She, he, uh, she scolds him periodically, pretty severely, um, and he is whining and accusing her and blaming her and um, doing things that he shouldn't do, but he's doing them, and she keeps telling him no. Um, I asked her why she'd come down. Um, is it to suffer false accusations along with me? Why, my child, um, should I desert you? Why should I not share your labor and the burdens you have saddled because of the hatred of my name? She understands that everything that he's going through is because of her. That's interesting. She doesn't shirk responsibility or she says, it's because of me. She knows it's because of him. Because it's his practice of goodness that, that's made people hate him in the Senate. Now, if that seems odd, just stop for a moment. Why did people crucify, why did they execute Socrates? Because he was a bad guy? Socrates went around showing that he understood some things and the people who claimed that they did understand them didn't. They hated him for his virtue because he was good and he knew things. They killed him because for him to be alive was a reproach on them. It's as if his presence convicted them. Why was Christ killed? Because he was a bad man? People hated him for his goodness. Why was Thomas More executed? Catholic. Because of his virtue. Because his virtue made other people, particularly the king, seem as if he weren't virtuous. And the, the last thing that the king wanted to deal with was the idea that he not he might not be the person he thought he was. You guys following? So it was his practice of virtue, his goodness, that made him hated, that made people single him out. 
So Lady Philosophy is saying, I'm the last person that's going to um, abandon you. She says at the bottom of page 7, In olden times, too, before the time of my servant Plato, Plato was a servant. He followed her. I fought many a great battle against the reckless forces of folly, and um, then in Plato's own lifetime, his master Socrates was unjustly put to death. A victorious death won with me at his side. They killed him because of his love of philosophy. One of the accusations of the Protestant mind of the Catholic, this is really interesting, their claim, one of the reasons of hating the Catholic, and I'm not exaggerating, is because they see that the Catholics took on a philosophic aspect, and that made them bad. That instead of going back to this original sort of spiritual sense of love of God, that this original, without the accretions or observances or additions you know, to Christ that a theology brings to Christianity, um, um, Christ would have come to us in a pure form. Now think about what would have happened to the church if philosophy had, had not been there. Would we have been able to answer all the heresies? Arianism, Sabellianism, all of them. Nestorianism, monarchical, I mean, you can go on and on and on. The church gradually developed, saw the importance of philosophy because it was only by learning to answer heresies, because they didn't know all of this stuff in the beginning. When somebody came up and said Christ is only a man, it's not like they had a program to offer already formed. They had to learn to answer that on the basis of the reading of Scripture. And so um, a philosophic tradition grew up with the church. It's part of what helps defend it. And the tradition that was carried forward was largely Platonic Aristotelian because both of them were realistic. Now what she's saying here is um, people killed Socrates because of his philosophy. After the mobs of Epicureans and Stoics and others each did all they could to seize for themselves, the inheritance of wisdom that he left, as part of their plunder, they tried to carry me off, so her gown got torn. Now just for a second, she's saying that the philosophic unity that had been achieved in the ancient world before Christ got ripped. Dante would agree, Boethius agrees, St. Thomas would have agreed, St. Augustine would have agreed. St. Augustine was a... Medician, a Platonist. He eventually turned from all of those. He learned to see there were faults. But they were the ones that gave him a, the mind that he used to defend Christ. It's because he was so philosophic that he could have done what he did. But here's my question right here. What's wrong with Epicureanism or Stoicism? Because she says those were the two philosophies that tore the unity of philosophy apart. What's wrong with them? You guys are going to thought we were going to just read a nice story here. What is Epicureanism? Does anybody know? Do you guys remember? Epicureanism is in the philosophy of St. Augustine. What a great mind. What a great philosophic mind. God, what our church. St. Augustine's claim was that Epicureanism destroyed Rome. It was one of the, one, this is how big it is. It was one of the philosophies that destroyed Rome. 
The Epicurean philosophy can re be reduced to this line. Eat, drink, be merry today because there will be no tomorrow. What's wrong with that? By the way, we live in a very Epicurean culture right now. Eat, drink, be merry, for there is no tomorrow. What's the meaning of that? God, it's, it sounds so innocent. It scares me when I hear it. Are you? Are you? Just... Sorry, David, was that you? There is no eternity. Yeah, flesh that out, Dave, can you? Yeah, flesh that out, can you? Explain it. Well, eat, drink, and be merry means do whatever you want to do. Uh, you're not going to be punished for it. You're not going to be rewarded for it. Um, so do what you want to do. Right. So what's the motivating factor for everybody's life? It's self-pleasure right now. Right. There is no tomorrow. There's there, That is, there's no immortality of the soul. The soul's not immortal, doesn't matter, nothing's going to happen tomorrow when you die, so have your pleasures while you can. Augustine's claim was that philosophy destroyed Rome, because what happens, what happens when a culture gives over to that? If you start living for the eating, drinking, be merry, what can, what can you not do? Have sex, disorder, do whatever you want, kill, have as many babies as you want, marriages as you want. There's, you know, I mean, there are no laws. Pleasure is the governing factor of your life. I mean, you can. I mean, it's it's not like it's not alive in our culture today. It's very much alive. What is stoicism? What's wrong with stoicism? What's wrong with stoicism? It's the Sorry, Maria. Go ahead. Oh, no, uh, I think Anne wanted to say something. No, you go ahead. No, you go ahead now. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's the exact opposite of Epicureanism. Um, and the, the problem is, well, as human beings, we are both spirit and body. And so if we deny either, then we are not acknowledging the full reality of being humans. Wow, and wow. Asceticism denies the flesh, so yeah. it's part of being human reality. Boy. You should be here teaching, Maria. You should be in this seat. No, that was so well said. That was so well said. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. Wow. Anybody have anything to add? You were going to say something? It, does, it doesn't really answer that question, but in reading Boethius, and in reading the poetry, I have so been pulled into, and unfortunately, because we're blessed with many priests, we don't all hear the same homilies. Uh, this last weekend, Father Flynn's homily was on how we are distracted by kind of goods and important things in this world that we don't see what is more important than that. We get distracted from our ultimate end. And I, I just think all of this just ties together so well. Yeah. Anybody else? 
Stoicism, it's interesting. Maria, could you, I don't know if you can, can you elaborate in, in what way it's the exact opposite? I was really taken by that. How is it the opposite of Stoicism? Uh, or Epic, because, sorry, Epicureanism? Because in Epicureanism, um, you just follow what the flesh wants. So the desires of, yeah, the, the flesh desires. And the other one is following the spiritual desires and denying the flesh desires. Yeah. So it's, one is opposite yeah. to the other. And we need both because we are human. Yeah, 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 good. I, and you may know more about this than I do. I, I, I'm, I'm not sure that the Stoic believed in the afterlife, a spiritual life. But what they did do is the exact opposite in this sense. That the Epicureans said, follow whatever your feelings are, enjoy your pleasures, have whatever you want. The Stoic says, um, deny your feelings. Because to the extent that you hold on to feelings, you'll be frustrated and hurt. So, for example, if you hold on to the, some hope that something's going to happen and it doesn't happen, you're going to be crushed. You'll be disillusioned or, or you'll fall into despair. So they're the opposite in that sense. One says, follow your feelings, give in to pleasures. The other one says, this is, and to me it's so destructive. It says, deny your feelings. Stuff them. Stuff them. Don't express your feelings. Because to the extent that you give in to feelings, you're going to just cause disappointments for yourself. So they are, they really are the opposite in that sense. Um, and I think to Maria's point, the, the, the beauty of our faith, and particularly because Christ came in a body, is that we are corporeal creatures. We have minds and bodies. We're not angels. So to completely deny our bodies or our emotions is to deny our nature. It, it's harmful. You know, people who grew up who are, who are led to who are discouraged from expressing their feelings or repress them. People can overdo their feelings. And I think in some ways there's as much a fault in that direction as there is in the other one. You know, give in to your feelings, follow your feelings, um, let your feelings guide you. Um, you, can, you can overdo either one. But as a philosophy, each one is damaging. One says, do everything now because there's no consequence. The other one says, Stuff your feelings, bury them, don't deal with them, because anytime you have feelings, you're going to end up being disappointed, and that's bad. So both of them struck at the unity of philosophy as it was handed down from Plato and Aristotle. Okay? Um, I know, I know, Doc. Um... I'm just going to pass over a couple of questions here, and then on pages um, um, 13 and 14, if, you, if you've gone over there, um, on, well, actually, turn to page 9 before you do. Um, Lady philosophy has, is in one sense given Boethius a, a means, an answer of how to get out of his predicament. Um, he's let his emotions go too far, 
the answer isn't just expressing his emotions. He's got to learn to order them the right way. So she says, um, do you understand, on top of nine, do you, do you understand this, she went on? And have my words penetrated your mind, or are you like the proverbial donkey, deaf to the liar? A, a, um, a lyric was just given, so it's a piece of poetry, it's a lyric, and she's asking whether he's a donkey. <laughs> what can you say about her? Um, um, tell me why you're weeping, why your eyes are full of tears. As Homer says, speak out and hide it, not within. If you want the doctor's help, you must reveal the wound. So it's crucial before she can go on to help that he's got to identify what's wrong with him. So go back to um, Melody's comment about the nurturing aspect of philosophy. She's doing everything she can to help expose this wound, not to harm him, but um, so that she can treat it give it the treatment she, um, she should. What happens then in the next um, three or four pages up to up through 13, 14, is that he actually gives an account of what happened in the Senate on page 12 in the middle. As for the forged letters, um, cited as evidence that I'd hope for the freedom of Rome, a little to that. Um, on page 13, a few lines down, um, I was preparing a speech at some action. You remember how Verona a charge of treason was made against Albinus and how in his eagerness to see the total destruction of the Senate, the king tried to extend the charge to, to them all in spite of their universal innocence. So the, the, the strains between the king and the Senate were growing. You remember how he defended them with complete indifference to any danger? He came to the defense of the Senate for its goodness. I defended them with complete indifference to my danger, and you know that I'm telling the truth and have never boasted of any merit of mine. So he names the people, um, says what happened, and makes it clear that everything that's happened right now um, was unjust, unfounded. He's there unjustly, there's no claim against him, he's being punished without desert. The bottom of page 14, and so stripped of every possession and thrust from my office and with my reputation and ruins for doing a favor, I've received a punishment. I seem to see the wicked haunts of criminals overflowing with happiness and joy. I seem to see the most desperate of men threatening new false denunciations. I seem to see good men lying prostrate with fear and the danger I am in while all abandoned villains are encouraged to attempt every crime. The evil people are prospering. He tried to be virtuous and is being executed. I, and I seem to see the innocent deprived of peace and safety and even of all chance of self-defense. If the evil are going to be rewarded and the good are going to be punished, why do any good at all? We're back at the same question I posed earlier. Socrates was punished because of his virtue. Christ was to be punished because of his goodness, not because he's bad. More the same, the same way. Um, where's it? Oh, in the Old Testament, you know this reading because we get it often in the Psalms, or, or I think it's Psalms, it may be Proverbs, but you remember the description of the just man? That all the people plotted against him. They wanted to do everything they could to, to test him, to show that he was not just, that his justice was unreal. Do you all remember that? It, 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 it's one of the 
old tradition, or the old readings from the Old Testament annually, almost, it comes up, that all these people are out to get the just man, to prove to everybody else that he's not just. It's, it's an anticipation, it's an anticipation of what will go on with Christ, that the leaders are going to do everything they can to try to bring Christ down, because so long as he stands, everything he does represents a condemnation of all that they do. So what's behind this is innocence will be destroyed. Evil will be rewarded. Okay. Now this is um, this is where a major turn takes place and we're getting close to time. Um, we just had a reading on page 16, another, another verse. Um, o thou who bindest bonds of things, look down on all earth's wretchedness. Of this great work is man so mean, apart by fortune, to be tossed. Lord, hold the rushing waves in check, and with the bond thou rulest the stars. Make stable all the lands of earth. So you can hear that verse form. It's as if the, the, the healing technique is rhythmic. A tough argument, you get tough, you relax. What's the beat of the heart called? Systemic or rhythmic or, you know, that it comes, goes, you relax, push again. The, so the whole method is rhythmic. Push hard. It's like a woman in pregnancy. Push hard, relax, you know, until finally. Um, but she says now, after that verse, the moment I saw your sad tear-stained looks, they told me that you had been reduced to the misery of banishment. But unless you told me, I would have not have known how far you'd been banished. Bottom of 16. However, it's not simply a case of your been, having been banished far from your home. You have wandered away yourself, or you prefer to be thought of as having been banished. It is you yourself that have been the instrument of it. No one else could have done it. For if you remember the country you came from, it's not governed by majority rule like Athens of old. But if I may quote Homer, one is its lord and one its king. Where is she going right now? Because she just said, you're the problem, not the Senate. She's not saying, the, the king, sorry, she's not saying the king did a bad thing. That's not what she's saying. She's saying, you want to see yourself as being banished. Even though it's clear he's been unjustly treated. You've forgotten where you came from. For if you remember the country you came from, it was not governed by a majority rule like Athens of old. But if I may quote Homer, now you guys know Homer, one is its lord and one its king. And rather than having been banished, he prefers to have a large body of subjects. And he goes on like this. In the middle of the page, And so it's not the sight of this place which gives me concern, but your own appearance. And it's not the wills of your library with their glass and ivory, all your books in your study, that I'm looking for, but the seat of your mind. That is the place where I once stored away, not my books, the things that make them have any value to philosophy they contain. She says um, on 19, we're winding up right now. Um, she says, for me to help you, because she's been using gentler medicines, remember, She's going to get tougher and tougher. She says at the top of 19, Will you first then let me discover your state of mind and test it with a few simple questions? That way I can discover the best method 
of curing you. Ask what you like, Boethi says. Do you believe that this life consists of haphazards and chance, or do you think it's governed by some rational principle? If you know anything about a Boethius, you'd know. In fact, let me put it to you. I'm asking this, it's a long philosophic discussion, I don't want to get into it. Can you state very simply whether the world is governed by chance, which is what scientists today say, or not? Is there evidence one way or another? I would say no. No what? No it's which? not governed by chance. It's governed by God. Why? Give me an obvious, a simple reason. Very simple would be if uh, it was by chance, they could never study the world because it could change by chance. Oh, good tomorrow. for you. God, you should be coming, sitting here, yeah. Maria, what's your background? Do you have a, do you have, did you do work in philosophy? No, but I really like it. <laughs> God, you're amazing me tonight, just amazing me. I, I'm going to, we've already got this on tape, so it's going to, um, chance only happens irregularly. Can you, I mean, Maria's right, right on target. Chance is something that happens irregularly. If something happens regularly, it's not evidence of chance. It's evidence of a, a mind that unites things, that governs them. Chance only happens rarely. That's what chance is. I mean, just think about what she just said, how stupid scientists are for saying things are governed by chance. Then how do we get the regularity that we get in the universe? The constancy of things, right? How did, how did, Maria, how did you say it again? I thought, if say it again. That if it was by chance, they would be unable to study yeah, the physical yeah. world because it would change. Like it would be different. Yeah, it'd be one thing one moment, another thing another, and if you couldn't catch it, how could you study it? Bless your soul, God. Is everybody clear? So, in a sense, Lady Philosophy is asking this question rhetorically because she knows Boethius knows the answer to that. Chance happens irregularly. It's randomly. That's what chance is. There can't be the constancy in the universe unless it's governed by a mind. That kind of unity could not come. That's not a product of chance. For scientists to assume that only show how stupid they are, how unable to think they are. If I had my way, I'd, I'd make Maria the head of the greatest university in the country right now and um, tell her to deal with the scientists and straighten them out. Um, but where she's going now, remember she just said, you're the problem. You're the problem. So she says, do you know whether chance governs things or um, the regularities due um, to God? Tell me, she says, um, since you have doubts that the world's governed by it, what's the means by which you think he guides us? Go down. I did hear it once, I said, but my memory has been blunted by grief. Okay, here we are. His emotions have so overwhelmed him, he can't think straight. Giving in to our emotions is not an answer. She's doing everything she can to distance himself from his emotions. At the top of 20, how can it be then that you know the beginning of things but don't know their end? If he knows that things began with God, if there was a God, 
If that's the beginning of things, how can he not know his end? Go down a few lines. Um, are you sure? She says there's nothing more quite sure. Now I know the other cause, or rather the major cause of your illness. You have forgotten your true nature. You do not know the beginning or ends of things. Um, he's given into this grief, remember, this amnesia. He's lost sense of his connection with his beginnings and his ends. And it won't be until he can rediscover, recall, his beginnings and his ends that he'll finally face find his place again. And it won't matter what the outcome of that sentence will be. Because right now he's saying, I'm, so it goes back to the question that I asked at the opening of the class. What happens when things are taken from us? Or when we lose something? I'm assuming that, that for a lot of us we'd give in to grief. You know, our emotions would over, we'd get angry, we'd get envious. We don't want to not have something when somebody else next to us has it. Those are the driving forces. What she's doing is taking him beyond that. So she's helping him to get past these disordered emotions very slowly. And I and love um, Melody's word and the things that Maria's. Um, she's teaching him to remember the most important things to stand on. So book one ends with, um, with Lady Philosophy saying, the judgment wasn't the problem, you're the problem. And let me go back to that statement, if I again, for a line, because she says, um, if you remember the country you came from, it wasn't Athens. We're going to get to a passage that I think is going to blow your mind away because it's going to be indirectly a criticism of democracy and socialism. And you know how much they're at the forefront of political things today. But what's this country? She said, for, if, for, if you remember the country you came from, it's not governed by majority rule. What country is she talking about? It's the only country in which you cannot lose things where your beginning and end is there. Where is that? Heaven? Yeah. Are you talking about where he came from? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, heaven. Yeah. I was going to say, um, I had a thought that was really important. It just book one ends. Um, you've forgotten your true nature. You don't know your beginnings and your ends. Oh, here, hold on to this. What was the great theme of the Odyssey? Nostoi, home, homecoming. The whole action of the Odyssey was to go home. To be for Odysseus to be reunited with his family. The Noste, the home, to come home. What was the great theme of the Aeneid? To go home. He had to found a city, but he couldn't found this strange city, the city that was unlike any other city. It was the greatest city in the world. No city could compare with it. None, none could do what it did, and yet it was not enough. He had to go home in order to found this extraordinary city. 
He had to go to Rome to do it, and when he got there, he found that he was actually returning to the place of his ancestors. He was coming home. It's what led to Eliot's lines. I've, I've quoted them you know, for you often. In my beginning is my end. In my end is my beginning. So she's saying, the problem with you is in yourself. You know, so you vested all your time in this place, this Athens, and with all of its envy and pride and disorders, this earthly city, then how could you not grieve if you lose something? Because everything about this city is grief-given. Everything about it's wrong. There's something wrong with it. So at this point, a major turn is taking place. She's identified the illness. She's brought him to a point of saying, you're the problem. It's not the city. You started out loving philosophy. Everything you've done led you to this. People hate you because you love the truth. And now you're whining <laughs> because you're being persecuted for the very thing you say you love. Um, so this is one of the first major turning points of the poem. What she's going to do in book two, and we'll, we'll go through book two briefly. What I'd like to do next week is book two and three even though you've probably already done it. I'm, I'm going to take next week and do two and three. We're not going to spend too much time on two, but we will three. But in two and three, she's going to look at those things um, that promise happiness in this life. So she's going to look at those things that, that all men see as good and all men want. Um, it's going to be a major stage in her argument, okay? And just to let you know, there are going to be these major stages. This is the first one. We're going to hit another one in the next two books. And then we're going to hit an, a couple of more. And one of them at the end, I'd just be surprised if it didn't knock your socks off. It, ama it still amazes me when I think about it. Anyway, there are going to be these frequent conversions. So it's lady philosophy, very gradually, but very firmly, helping Boethius to recover himself. And it's marked by definite stages. The first one makes it clear that what happened was not the fault. It's his response to it, that he's lost his way. He, he's, he's, he's lost his memory. He's in a state of amnesia and amnesis. He's got to find his way back. Okay? So let me stop. Any any last comments or before we leave? Um, And if you see Father Flynn, mm -hmm. say hello to him, and if you can say this, tell him that it looks like the two of us are working in sync. <laughs> I think yes. he'd be glad to hear that. I, 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 I see Father once a month. I, I, I generally go to him for confession. I so, I so enjoy him. Anyway, if you see him, say hello to him. Okay. Any, any last comments? Maria, I'm going to leave the last comment for you. <laughs> Bless your soul. God, I love your, I love your smiles, you guys. Okay, um, um, keep, keep all of us, each other, in your prayers, would you please? All of us, pray for us, Suzanne and uh, me and our family, particularly two of our sons. I'd be grateful, Thomas and Christopher, um, grateful for your prayers. Bless you all. Um, keep up the good work you're doing, okay? See you next week. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you.
Good night. Good night, you guys.